but we're focused on cash burn. We're focused on our nominal cash position. We're focused again from efficiency perspective on DSOs and like to ensure that we are continuing to improve those operating metrics along the way. So those are the four areas that I would say if I had to distill down all the metrics that we share, both financial and operational with our board, they can all be categorized along one, one of those four dimensions. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading accounts payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us today on the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. My name is Ben Murray, and I'd like to welcome Will Johnson, CFO of Iterbull. Great to have you here today, Will. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, good morning, Ben, and nice to be with you. So I'm the CFO of Iterbull. We're a customer engagement platform, really powering the interactions of almost now a thousand B2C businesses. Uh, really across uh, across both North America and Western Europe. Just to give you a quick sense of scale, the business we've shared publicly last fall that we had crossed the $100 million ARR milestone, and we are now over 600 employees. I joined in the summer of 2019, so coming up, it's hard to believe it's almost three years now. And to give you a sense of our growth, when I joined the business, we are about 175 employees, and both from an employee count and an ARR perspective, in my, my short tenure, we've quadrupled in a number of respects. Um, I've served also as CFO of two prior uh, venture-backed, privately-held SaaS businesses. Uh, further back in my career, I ran corporate development for two public SaaS players. The more notable of the two was Workday. And then further back in my career, before moving into the operating arena, I spent about a decade as a venture investor. So on the other side of the table, as I like to joke, investing mostly in mid and late stage SaaS businesses that look a lot like um, where Iterable is today or where it was maybe one stage prior. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Love the, the background. So VC kind of investor perspective, corp dev, and now jumping in as an operator, as a CFO. And yeah, that's quite the growth when you join 175 employees up to 600 plus and 100 million plus AR now. So really good size, which we'll dive into your VC dev background in a little bit in some of the later sure. questions. But first, let's talk shop. And usually I ask, yeah, kind of what stage are you at? But it's just to get a sense of scale. So we're looking at 100 million plus ARR, 600 plus employees. So tell us a little bit about your structure at Iterable, your CFO function, your department. What's that department structure and what are you responsible for there as the CFO? Yeah, happy to. Responsible for what I'd say the classic financial functions, that being accounting and FP&A. In addition, I have the pleasure of working alongside our legal team, security and IT, which RGC manages and we work closely together. Our workplaces team, which is facilities and employee culture considerations and, and procurement as well. Okay. And what about what, so of all the department's employees that report to you, how many staff do you have reporting to you right now? 
It's about 60 in total across all of those sub teams. Okay. Did you six zero or one six? Six zero. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For that yeah. size. Yeah. So about yeah. 60 staff reporting to you. You've got accounting directly reporting to you, FP&A, legal, maybe some shared stuff with security IT, and then you have the facilities procurement side. And what about, maybe HR was weaved in there. What about human resources function? Does that roll up to you or is that separate? That no, we have a separate um, people leader that, that manages our people team. Our, okay. Clearly, you know, and maybe obviously it's a, it's a team that both myself and my sub teams work very closely with, but that's a separate being within the business. Yeah, it makes sense at your size because hey, what you've seen early stage, you lead CFO. You're always involved with HR side as a CFO, it seems like with payroll benefits, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. Prior roles as CFO, I have managed HR. And I would say that certainly in our scale and where we expect and aspire to be in the next couple of years, it makes complete sense that again, that HR, its own discipline, that our people team has its own leader that reports ultimately to our founder and CEO. Makes sense. So at your size, 600 employees, 100 million plus ARR. So the complexity, so about how many staff do you have in accounting and FP&A to run a business of this size? So, yeah, when you talk about just the classic function, and I'll include procurement in there as well, in addition to accounting and FP&A, that's about 20 folks in total out of the 60. The legal team is also a substantial team under the umbrella the team that I work on internally, we call business operations. And then security and IT is almost half of, the, of that 60 person number. Okay. <clears throat> so the classic functions you, functions, you said about 20 employees, say accounting, mm -hmm. FPA, middle world procurement. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And then rolling on here, always interesting company of your size versus, say, a company of 10 million AR, probably the metrics that you're reporting on, those key KPIs are probably a little different for a company at your size. So what are you tracking? What's important for the board? And what do you report to the board as far as KPIs or metrics that really dictate or tell you about the direction and the health of your business? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, every business is going to have some nuance and particularly on the operating side, what's important and what really represents the progress of the business. But I would say as, as a SaaS player, a lot of what we share and report with the board and what we're focused on, equally importantly is internally, is going to be similar, I think, to a lot of SaaS businesses. So if, if I think about how I would break down the buckets of information or the insights that we share with our board and that we are, again, focused on as a management team as well. The first is going to be the field, summer acquisition, growth in terms of new logos, of course, growth in terms of ARR on a both gross and net basis. So meaning the field and then upsells as well. The efficiency of our field, both from a sales and marketing perspective, that's, and again, every CFO, I think probably has a couple of uh, favorite SaaS metrics there, whether it's a magic number of other or others, but being able to measure how effective every dollar of sales and marketing spend is in yielding incremental ARR is, of course, really important and top of mind for our board. So that's the field is the first bucket. I'd say our customer base or our install base is second. Again, growth and net dollar retention, logo retention. We also, of course, like many businesses do, survey our customers in terms of 
their respective health and their satisfaction with our offering and how much value we're delivering. So that set of metrics on the install base would be the second bucket. The third is operating leverage. And the proxy, I think a lot of CFOs immediately point to, of course, uh, as it relates to operating leverage in their respective businesses is going to be gross margin. But I would also say that for us, we layer in some people metrics as well, because again, for a technology-based business like ours, our core asset are our employees, which we call iterators. And so we look at some of the operating leverage elements specific to the people function and specific to talent acquisition. And then the last is our balance sheet. So again, we're very fortunate to be very well backed and have a, a fantastic list of supporters in the venture community and on our cap table, but we're focused on cash burn. We're focused on our nominal cash position. We're focused again from efficiency perspective on DSOs and like to ensure that we are continuing to improve those operating metrics along the way. So those are the four areas that I would say, if I had to distill down all the metrics that we share, both financial and operational with our board, they can all be categorized along one one of those four dimensions. Yeah, and really not a surprise at a company at your size. So your four buckets, say sales and marketing efficiency, then around your customer base, operating leverage, and then balance sheet. And then let's dive in a little bit. You mentioned maybe favorite metrics. I have my favorite metrics that I look at, say CAC payback period, cost of AR, things like that. But when you look at your metric set, I'm just curious, what are those couple metrics that are your favorites? For sure. One that rises to the top is going to be net dollar retention or NRR. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that really speaks to the health of our install base. And it speaks to, again, the underlying growth in the install base really is an indicator of how much value our customers, again, almost now a thousand logos strong, how much value our customers are deriving from our offerings. And so that's that's absolutely on my short list. A second, and you mentioned CAC payback, a second for me closely related is LTV to CAC because that as a metric encapsulates as you so many different sub-dimensions, it's gross margin affected. It takes into account, again, how the average tenure, how long our customers are with us, the, our average deal sizes, as well as the field efficiency, of course, how much we're spending to acquire each one of those new logos. Yep. No, that's great. So NDR, LTV to CAC, yeah, one of those, some of those favorite metrics out there, ubiquitous metric. Yeah, that's great to hear. And then before we roll into your tech stack and how you power your back office operations, tell us a little bit about your revenue streams, because that can also dictate, say, your finance tech stack, the complexity of the accounting. So your traditional contracted MRR, ARR, do you have any usage transaction in there as well or any mm-hmm. services? So yes to all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I think pretty typical for a modern SaaS business or platform like ourselves. So the core of our business, the real revenue engine is subscription-based, of course. You know, minimum 10-year term is going to be annual, but most of our customers today are on multi-year engagements or contracts with us. The, there is, when you think about our pricing model, it does break down to a couple of subcomponents, and there is a usage component. Again, very, I think, typical for platforms like ourselves, but the usage elements for us break down into a couple different vectors. One covers the scope. Again, these are B2C businesses that are our customers. So the scope 
meaning the number of consumers, the number of consumer profiles that they're intending to engage with or communicate with on our platform, that's going to be one. The second is around message volume. So again, our platform is used to communicate with consumers across a whole variety of channels, traditional channels like email, more cutting edge channels in the mobile arena and everything in between. And so messaging volume is a second vector in our pricing model. And the third is data. And we have, a, I think, a very liberal posture as it relates to data, certainly relative to our competitive set. Our default in storing that transactional data, all those behavioral observations that we see uh, that capture how consumers are interacting with the brands that we're powering, we generally share those interactions for multiple years as a default, whereas a lot of our competitors measure their default stance in a short number of months. And so but that data component is the third element to, to our pricing model. And then finally, your question around services, of course, getting our customers up on and running and effectively using Iterable and starting to see value, time to value, on our platform is critical to business like ours. And so we have a fantastic professional services organization that helps to, to really update our new logos when they come onto to the Iterable platform. Put in perspective, that being said, because of the ease of use, ease of integration of our platform and through its underlying design are on a comparative basis, our implementation timeframes are relatively short for our industry. And so the vast majority of our revenue, if you think about it on a gap perspective, the vast majority of our revenue comes from that subscription base. It's the recurring revenue component and less than 10% is the one-time revenue that, that we generate from the enablement piece around professional services. Okay. Yeah. So more of that pure place SaaS profile service is a small component. And when you say short implementation timeframe, is this spinning up customers in weeks, a couple months? It really depends. It's a great question. It really depends on the business itself. So we go to market, we have three distinct um, segments and that we call emerging growth and enterprise. The majority of our install base and our revenue stream tagged to the latter to the enterprise business. But on the other end of that, the emerging segment of our business, these are going to be fairly small in many cases, venture-backed businesses of a Series B or C themselves who are really starting to build their own business-to-consumer brand and footprint. And in those cases, yeah, the implementation times can be as short as a few weeks or a month. Of course, on the enterprise, when you're talking about very large multinational businesses who want to engage with, in some cases, a global array of consumers that they're targeting, the implementation times are going to be measured in months, not yep. in weeks. Yeah, it makes sense. So your revenue stream, so you've got traditional subscription, you've got that usage component, plus a data component, of course, traditional professional services. And so with those components and of your size, what kind of software, what components to your tech stack do you have in place as far as your general ledger? Do you need specialized invoicing, RevRec, sales tax compliance? What does that look like to power your finance and accounting function? Yeah. Yeah, I, we, I would I'd say, I think we're a pretty traditional stack, certainly uh, for a business of our size and scale. Uh, so our financial backbone is NetSuite, probably no surprise there, and a, and a platform we continue to be really happy with. Uh, when you think about Q and really the whole commercial element of the business, 
of course, we leverage Salesforce in the field. We leverage Zora. I, I think of that as the middle piece of the puzzle. We also, I would say, have done a really good job in the last maybe two years now of layering in elements of the tech stack that bonds to a Salesforce or the like or NetSuite that really give us additional insights into our business. So I'll give you two examples. One is a forecasting and BI platform specific to the field called Boost AI. We use really to forecast our quarterly type and to measure and really be able to dive into each of those segments that I spoke to and how they're faring across a whole number of dimensions in real time. So that's one. And a second is Flowcast on the financial side, where again, a tool you might be familiar with, where again, we use that to make sure that we're continually shorten our time to close post, post end of month, post end of quarter, end of period. And that tool uh, we found is really helpful again, on top of NetSuite to help us understand where we are in that process in near real time. Yep. And real quick question. I always love the time to close question. What's your goal for business days to close the books or have that soft close where you're, we're almost done with the books for the month? We are lucky to have a fantastic controller who joined us a bit over two years ago now. And he has managed, I think when David joined, our time to close was on the order of 10 days. But today it's about six. Okay. And as we aspire time in the next couple of years to be a public company, we really don't have much of a gap from where we are today to close in terms of where we want to be as a public company, which is which I'm really thrilled to be able to say. Great. Yeah, that's great. Six days, pretty tight turnaround. And then one last question on the tech stack. What about your FP&A team? What about forecasting budgeting analysis solutions that they may use for their everyday life? Sure. So to a lot of business, I say, again, it's a similar scale. We, when I joined the business, we were very much reliant on Excel and or Google Sheets, depending on the complexity or the use case. We've adapted what was after planning, of course, now part of Workday as our core planning tool. This is my second time using Adaptive. So that, that has become, and we're still in the middle of fully utilizing that platform, but that quickly, we're quickly transitioning to that being a core planning block of our tech stack and infrastructure. Okay. Interesting. So you got NetSuite building upon that, Salesforce, Aura, Boost AI, Flowcast for closed management, Workday for planning. So yeah, pretty robust tool set there. So let's transition a bit into your background and really interesting with the Corp Dev VC background. <laughs> uh, but one thing that comes up a lot today to be an effective CFO in SaaS is being a strategic CFO. Mm. So what does that kind of mean to you and how you operate the finance function at Iterable? And, and for the listeners out there, what's important in today's skill set of a, a modern SaaS CFO? Yeah, it's a great question. I really do believe that the, the role of the CFO has significantly changed or evolved over the last decade or maybe perhaps even longer. I had a mentor early on who was one of the folks that, that, that convinced me to take on the CFO role, who was a longtime CFO himself. But had the traditional background, had the accounting background. His claim to fame, he was the CFO for PeopleSoft. And what he helped really me to understand is that the role of the CFO, of course, you've got to understand the accounting elements and gap. And particularly for a business like ours, again, with aspirations to, to someday be a public candidate, those things become more and more important. But 
to get to your question on what strategic CFO versus maybe the legacy notion of an accounting CFO, for example, number one is truly having a seat at the table. When I think about our business, the finance team, my function, it's not siloed. I view myself in a role where alongside my partners in the CEO and COO roles, that together, along with our management team at large, we are working cross-functionally to drive the direction of the business. And the strategic CFO, number one, has to have a seat at that leadership table. And it has to be, again, the role has to be viewed as having a more holistic perspective. I really believe the CFO today, part of it is about insights. So it's not sufficient the way maybe it used to be for a CFO to be often described as reporting the news. What happened last month, last quarter with the business? The CFO should be in a position where she or he is now helping to make the news. And that means, again, helping through yielding insights in the business, yielding insights from a lot of the platforms and SaaS technology we've talked about to help determine not only where we're coming from, but where we're going. As we're driving this car down the road known as iterable, you know, what's our ultimate destination? Where are the stops along the way? What pitfalls or put holes might we be trying to steer around or avoid? I think that the key leadership of any team, including the CFO, they have to all see that their respective roles as the same in, in that capacity. Yeah. Does that so make I sense? Love, oh yeah, that makes sense. I love it because part of the CFO role is reporting the news, but now the bigger part of that, like you said, is now making the news, influencing the decision-making when your executive sitting at that leadership table, because right, CFOs now, ha- yeah, you have to have that holistic view, that operational view, so you can provide the finance voice uh, yeah, at the table and influence those decisions. Yeah, I would say to build on that as well, I think that when we talk about street, strategic CFO, the role has become a lot more operational than it was historically. And I think that's probably where you find or why you find folks like myself in the role today, where historically it was mostly folks that had grown up in accounting. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is somewhat unique about the role and where, where CFOs can really help their peers on a management team is the CFO is somewhat, I would say, in a unique position to observe cross-functionally the entire business. So it's no longer about just the financial metric, some of the SaaS metrics we talked about. It becomes a conversation about, okay, yeah, those are end results, but what are the key drivers? So again, this customer sat, how we're going to market, those sorts of things where the CFO, I'd say someone in a position to to be able to observe those intersections. So how are sales and marketing collaborating, working together? How is product management and engineering working together and to help to grease those wheels to foster more collaboration from our positions is again seeing the business across its entirety yeah definitely that operational key to influence influencing decisions because that results in your financial performance your financial metrics and with your background you have a really interesting background that you didn't start out in the accounting or finance function, really started out in that investor role, then corp dev. So let's talk about that a bit. And how has that influenced how you approach the CFO, how you manage your team versus say someone else, say you come up the accounting path, yours is a little different. So has that influenced your philosophy towards the CFO role with your corp dev and VC background? Yeah, absolutely. So if I first start with corp dev, 
when I served as a corp dev leader, uh, in, in one instance, also managing strategy for one of the two public SaaS plays I worked for, it really, again, was a partnering with the management teams, respectively, to chart out what is our strategic roadmap? Again, what do we want to be as a business when we grow up and how do we get there? And that, of course, a lot of that is dictated by organic growth. But as a, a business continues to scale, of course, it's natural for businesses to start to turn towards inorganic growth to, to complement the business's organic footprint or organic roadmap. And it may be as simple as we want to do a tuck-in because, again, time to market for specific functionality, is it's easiest to acquire an existing product or capability. It may be that, again, to enter a new geo or new market segment, again, it's about time to, to value and acquiring those resources versus the classic build approach. Those were all conversations that, as a corp dev and strategy leader, that I found myself quarterbacking along with the rest of the management team. And that harkens back to what you and I were talking about a few minutes ago, which is the strategic CFO. I think part of the core role is, again, working with the entire management team to make sure that strategic roadmap is fleshed out. The one thing I'd say about corp dev and some of my colleagues, I'm I'm sure at Iterable are tired of hearing me say this, is that you want your inorganic approach, uh, your M&A strategy, you want it to be very disciplined and proactive. You don't want to be reactive. When you think about where the business, again, where you want it to be, maybe you're a teenager today and you look at adulthood, how do we get there? Um, what are the growing steps along the way? You want to be very deliberate about where do we need to build? Where might we partner? Where might we buy? Versus I got a call from an investment banker and They've got, they're shopping some asset and should we take a look at it? That, that reactive approach, never say never, but I would say for the most part that you don't want to find yourself in the reactive state. You want your roadmap from a strategy perspective to be very fleshed out and very deliberate. I'll go back to, your, to the second half of your question about, the, about my, my venture experience. I say, fortunate enough to having spent about a decade, as I mentioned, as a venture investor. And I think how it influences my role today as a CFO is a couple fold. Number one, I do feel like I have a, an advantage, a leg up when I think about a financing strategy. And of course, for a high growth, privately held business like ours, a financing strategy is an important element of the equation. It's, it's definitely a means to an end. But again, it's an important element in terms of how we continue to fuel our growth and innovation engines. And so having been on the other side of the table of being able to interpret venture speak, if you will, when you hear a partner uh, at a firm you're pitching, make an observation what that actually means. And maybe more importantly, understanding when that partner goes back to her, his partnership and pitches the idea of your business and a prospective investment, what that whole process behind the scenes looks like. Being able to, knowing that process and the internal pitch that they go through in most cases and being able to arm them effectively to help together to sway the partnership that it makes sense to pursue an investment in your business. That's something that I think has really been bolstered by by my experience in in, in the venture industry. And the second element, just briefly, is that Okay, now post-financing, you've managed to secure 
your investor of choice. Oftentimes, they're going to be joining the board or playing a role in corporate governance in some form or fashion. How do you get the most out of your board members? Having served on about a dozen or so boards in the past, that's helped me form perspective now as an operator. When should I go to a board member? When can I enlist their help? And when, honestly, should I try to keep them out of our kitchen and allow us to manage our business? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love, yeah, interpreting the VC speak, what goes on behind the curtain. And then, yeah, that's a great point that doesn't get discussed often is board composition. And yeah, when do you go to the board for something or go talk to that individual board member who may have an expertise in the area that you need help with? So really interesting. But let's, we'll stay on the VC topic here with that experience that you had on the investing side. Any tips and tricks, advice that you give to the finance pros and SaaS founders listening today who may be going through a capital raise right now? Sure. The most immediate piece of advice that comes to mind, and I think probably the most important is in your role as a CFO, in the financing process and at large, you are in a sales role and don't mistake anything otherwise. You're, and I'll come back to your financing question in just a second, but you should be constantly selling future employees on the opportunity. You should be engaged with prospective customers around the value that you can deliver, so on and so forth. The CFO is no different in my view than anyone else on a management team. That first and foremost, you represent your business in a sales capacity. Now, tying that back to the advice for, for someone in finance as it relates specifically to a fundraise, it's about storytelling. You can't lead with the numbers. The performance of a business, the scale of business, and we are very fortunate to, to have fantastic numbers, fantastic results, but I would never lead with those in a pitch. Those provide you credibility. But first and foremost, again, coming back to the notion of selling, it's persuading your audience, prospective investors, venture firms, that you've got a really interesting story to tell and that they ultimately want to be a part of the story. Then as stage two in the pitch, you reinforce that with your strong growth metrics and how the business is performing and how efficient it's becoming. But I do see a lot of my peers in the industry and in the role get those flipped where they think if we have really strong performance metrics, that's the end all be all. It's not. At the end of the day, these investors are all human beings. They want to feel a connection to the business. They want to buy into your vision and where you're taking the business and the opportunity. Yes, of course, they have their own investors, their LPs that they are responsible for generating returns on behalf of. But, but first and foremost, if you think about it from their perspective, again, as a former partner and venture myself, you've got a very limited asset and that is your time. And you're only able to serve on at best 10 boards, but probably more realistically five to seven. And where you invest your time is going to be a function of, do you buy into the story? Do you grok with the leadership team? Do you feel like they're aligned with your values? And are you going to enjoy working with that team over the course of many years down the road? All that, again, boils back down to making sure that when you pitch your business, you lead with those facets, you lead with your vision, your story, your culture, what you're trying to build as a business over the long haul. And then you back it up with hopefully very strong performance and financial metrics. 
Yeah, I love that because I work with a lot of early stage SaaS and maybe they don't have the numbers yet, enough volume of data to really say, hey, look at these, these metrics. But always it comes up storytelling, right? Telling yeah. that story, what's exciting. So it sounds like from your perspective and even at 100 million plus, storytelling never gets old. That's still part of it, whether you're 5 million ARR, 100 million ARR, storytelling is still a major component in pitching investors. 100%, yep. And then also, I think you got to it, the founder or slash management team slash investor fit, you know, that you're developing a relationship over the long run. And do you want to work with this management team or vice versa? Do you want to work with this investor over the next couple of years? Yeah, no, exactly. You hit the nail on the head. It's a two-way street, right? It should be a two-way conversation. You should view your financing process in that light as well, which is think of it as a dating process where for both parties... You want to make sure that you're aligned and that, again, to just build on an analogy, you're talking about contemplating a marriage where you're going to be together for many years to come. And you want to make sure that you're selecting a venture firm that not only has a great brand and deep pockets and global reach and all those things that I'd say are should come with the territory, but as well that the individual partner aligns with your vision, your philosophy, your approach. You're going to be in in the trenches at times with that individual. Your business almost guaranteed. It's not always going to be up and to the right. You're gonna, you're gonna hit one of those potholes along the way. And you got to ask yourself, is this some a person that I want in my corner? Are they gonna when we hit one of those issues or challenges, can they help us solve that challenge? Are they going to be someone who's going to roll up their sleeves and dig in and help? And it's a hugely important consideration in a financing process and how the firm, the partner, their respective team, how they interact with you on their diligence process, the types of questions they ask, how they show up, how they treat your management team and your employees. Those are all tells as to what that relationship might look like and indications for you that hopefully will help you formulate your own perspective as to which which firm or firms you want to work with and which firms you want to hitch your wagon to over the long haul. That's a yeah, great advice in there. I'll recap it before we move on to the final question. But it sounds like generally you're always selling, whether you're in finance, your management team, you're founding uh, the founder, you're selling employees, selling potential customers and prospects, but then getting into capital raise situation, also a sales process. Yeah. Telling the story, number one, backing that up with strong metrics. And you want them, like you said, buy into the vision, buy into that excitement. And then I know we rounded it off with founder investor fit. Really important that you can mesh and work together over the next couple of years. So a lot of great advice in there for founders out there and for finance teams. Uh, Yes, that was great. And one last question, because you have a really interesting career path going from the investor role to corp dev, then jumping in as an operator yourself as a CFO. What piece of advice would you give to the finance leaders out there listening today who may find themselves in that similar situation? They're in corp dev, are they the investor side of the table? Any advice for them if they're thinking about moving into an operator role as a finance pro inside a, in a side of a SAS work? Yeah. What kind of advice would you give them? Sure. I think two things come to mind immediately. One is, as we've been talking about through the course of the conversation, the role today is much more operationally oriented than it used to be. And so that means that folks who are coming from corp dev or investment banking or management consulting, which I also did earlier yep. in my career, 
I would argue they'd have they have a leg up because they should be looking at in each one of those roles the business holistically and considering both internal and external factors. And that to me is a plus having that broader perspective. And what I would say is then couple that with, so maybe the strategic view, the strategic mindset, couple that with really start to understand the fundamentals of a business and the industry. And as, as we've been talking about, again, in the course of our discussion, the CFO the, and the role of finance at large allows for individuals to really get a perspective of how each piece of the puzzle in a business fits together and spending the time being intellectually curious to, to understand those pieces. I think that's hugely important to someone making this career transition. But again, I think given probably the mindset they've had coming from one of those backgrounds, hopefully some of that is almost second nature. Okay. Yeah. Great advice. So really it sounds like making that transition, you've got that operational holistic view, take that into that position, understand the financial fundamentals of the business, the industry, and then just that curiosity to learn about the org, about the departments, the department leaders that you're serving. So that's great. So, well, Will, great stuff today. Great background, moving into a CFO role, managing a hundred million dollar plus SaaS business. And then the key points of capital raising, and we can't forget as finance leaders, we are selling. We can't forget to sell, whether in capital raising or just internally within the business. So we'll really appreciate the time. Thanks thanks for joining us today on the Leaders of Modern Finance. Ben, it was great to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks a lot. Take care. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.